do want to appreciate uh, the use of attention this weekend. We've been very attentive, and uh, I appreciate that. And there's so many distractions and things to think about, and people around you and friends you're making, and uh, the fact you've paid attention to the Lord's and Spirit has been a blessing to me. I wish you the Lord's blessing and satisfaction and service. I don't know of a greater blessing than having a personal life. I think, uh, yeah, there's probably no greater satisfaction than that. There's probably no greater frustration than not having one. A life that doesn't contribute to the kingdom of God. So maybe you know the blessing of that as you lay up your treasure and plug into working with Him. So read our text one more time. If any man serve me, let him follow me. Where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. And my desire is to be inside this earth, so it will be the roadmap of our life, that it could lead us home and be our guiding concept through life. There's many lines that Scripture draws between, between earth and heaven, between now and then. We find some here in this one. And it's hard to imagine how your 80 years of life can affect 80 billion plus years of eternity and beyond, plus eternity beyond, uh, how that's supposed to work. So here we are, and we understand that this scripture, this is the, the time of choices, the time of proving, the time of, of decision making, we can invest in that or not. Now, if you were guaranteed, I guess I can use Bitcoin as an example, that Bitcoin will go up 100% in the next year. Uh, you might make some choices about that, or another investment, maybe not that one. Um, if you invest 100 and get 200 back, you might think about doing some of that. If you were offered that you could, for every penny, you could get a million dollars back in 10 years, you thought it would do that too, wouldn't you? Might transform your financial choices. And I'd like to suggest this morning that even though we understand that our salvation depends on the work of Christ and our hope of eternal life is what He did. There are ample evidences in Scripture that what we do here directly affects eternity's outcomes there. It's a direct correlation to see in many places in Scripture. And here's one. We just read the text, If any man serve the our Father honor, in Revelation 21 3, it says, There shall be no more curse, for the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. That's not here, that's there. I don't know what this might look like, but can you imagine uh, Jesus coming to you, to your mansion, to your place, to your home of heaven, and putting a hand on your shoulder and saying, I have a job I want you to do for me here. I want you to maybe lead the singing tonight at our heavenly worship. I want you to share an inspiring, devotional testimony about what God means to you here. I want you to... I don't know. I, I'm just imagining. Build something. Plant something. Do something. I, I don't know. But the point is this. And John says, any man serve me, he'll be where I am. And here he says, his servant shall serve him there. There's a connection between those that choose to serve him here have the privilege of doing it there, whatever that might mean. I can't wait to see what that looks like. But the line is clear there. I want to go to another text of this message. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. That's in Revelation 22, 12. Some of our most embarrassing moments are probably connected with uh, unexpected arrivals, um, things you weren't expecting, they happen. 
one time we had this miscommunication from Guatemalan friends, and we talked about having supper with them on Thursday evening, but we never really confirmed it, and we thought, well, we'll just wait another week. And here's Thursday evening, and we're just sort of there doing our thing in our house, and we get a knock on the door, and the people showed up. We were not expecting that. We had no idea they even thought we had invited them for sure. And here they are at the door, no supper made. All you did was carry around and put something quick and pretend it never happened, pretend it was not a mistake. Uh, but it was embarrassing. Uh, I'll admit to you, before something like this, the weekend, I was pretty worried about getting there and not being ready. Uh, we started having weird dreams about uh, getting here without notes or arriving in teams or something everybody else called to accept. And just in a reminder, you've you got to be ready for this thing. So this last method, I want to speak about preparing ourselves for this greatest invitation and greatest task, this greatest deadline all of us can face at one point. We understand that serving our King is our highest calling, our highest honor, our deepest joy, but this comes with a built-in concern, a built-in focal point, this day of reckoning, at the end of it all, that we will face a day of reckoning about the way I've chosen to live and serve here on this earth. And one day I'll meet that king. There's no clue of the deadline, no word on the moment. I only know the songwriter wrote, uh, And on the earth the king shall stand, and as Job said, In this my body I will see him. And we need to understand that the king is coming, and we need to be ready. And what we're doing now is going to be given account of then. And the foundation of this message is a parable Jesus told, which maybe a couple of times, just in such different variations. It's found in Matthew 25. It's just number two of three parables in that passage about Jesus' second coming. It's found in Luke 19. And if you're in Jerusalem and, and the disciples ask if, if the kingdom is soon coming, they tell this parable. And we're going to read Luke's account this morning and take time to read it from Luke 19, verses 12 to 27. Hmm. I'll just read this. And he said, therefore... A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said to them, Occupy till I come. But his servants hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath been ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I fear thee, because thou art an austere man, thou takest up, that thou layest not down, and reapest thou that thou didst not sow. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money to the bank, that in my coming I might have required mine own with usury. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it him that hath ten pounds. And he said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from every one which that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. 
for those my enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. There's an interesting difference between what it says in Luke and what it says in Matthew. In Matthew, there's varying levels of resources based on the, the ability to serve. So one he gave five, one he gave two, one he gave one. You can handle this much, you can handle just this much, you can handle this one, you can have one. But here it says they all got the same thing. Ten pounds, ten servants, one each. I guess both have some significance. It's true that God gives people different things, different abilities, maybe different capabilities. It's also true that all of these servants, all of us as believers, have the same access to the same grace of God on an even playing field. Through prayer, through faith, through obedience, we can access the same spirit and stand the same faith and receive the same grace. That's also true. Matthew has three servants. Luke has ten. In Matthew's story, he only mentions servants, but in Luke's story, he mentions another group. The group besides the servants, the group that hated him and said, we will not have this man reign over us as he left. Now, nothing in Jesus' prayer will do to wait. And I think it's pretty easy to understand all of these characters in the story. And uh, not hard to understand this one. Like the nobleman, Jesus was leaving a while on kingdom business, receiving a kingdom and coming back. His goal was to return. He promised that. Like the servants, all those who sign up, volunteer, commit themselves, and be part of that employed group of people that have come into his service and chosen to serve this nobleman, this, this Christ. And then there's those that hated him. And I believe this group is simply those that want nothing to do with Jesus. Given the choice, they say, we would not have this man run over us. We reject him as our king. We want nothing to do with him. This morning, Jesus is the voluntary king of the voluntary servant. But the day is coming when he will be king over all the earth. And he is. He is the king. But, but now the relationship will be different. Some have chosen to reject that. Hopefully we're among those who accept that. And every knee will bow one day and fearful thing for those that hate him. But it's also his coming is a sobering thing for those that serve him. It's a day of reckoning for both groups. Those that hate and those that serve. It's a day of reckoning for both. That's the title of the message this morning, The King is Coming. And I believe the dimmer our expectation of his coming, the lower our motivation is to be found doing well at his coming. And the higher this can be in our minds every day, in our, our understanding of our life, the more motivated we will be to do his work and do it well. As we read this parable, we quickly understand the expectations of the nobleman as he went on his journey. And then he gave him one command. He said, he said, occupy until I come. In other words, be busy until I come back. He didn't say how long. He didn't say uh, what to do. even. no specific command about what to do with the resources left. He simply said, be busy with it. And there's many unspoken expectations in this passage. I'd just like that as we get through this and comment on this, you would know that these terms are interchangeable. When I say servants, I mean us. When I say the king, I mean the noble. When it says the noble, we mean the king. And so we understand the passage that way. The first thing that I find clear here is that the servants knew their master and understood his purposes and had no doubt about what to do with the resource he left them. 
gave him his town, and said, Oh, God, I come. And none of them said, Well, great, let's go to the circus. Good, let's go buy a horse. Uh, none of them said that because they all knew what the master meant when he said, Oh, God, I come. Now, when I was young, um, I can't remember how old, Chris, as well. I was old enough to drive a riding lawnmower. And so was Walter, my cousin. And Granddaddy told us, you go back and mow around the field back by the pond. I said, we're given a resource here. We'd love to drive around the lawnmower. But there was a little misunderstanding. We thought when you mow grass, you mow mow the yard, keep the field. And so we drove back there together across the creek up the hill. And so what did he actually mean? He gave us instructions on how to go around the field. We finally came to the conclusion he means for us to drive up into the hay field and sort of have fun driving around so he gets back there and shows what to do. And so we did. We went up in the field and got stuck. And that's where Granddaddy found us and came back. He wasn't happy. We were embarrassed. There was a, there was a missing understanding of, of what we were supposed to do with the resource we had our hands on. And when the king gives resources, he didn't mean to go have fun with it. He says, go occupy yourself with it until I come. He said this in John 15, 14, You're my friends. If you do whatsoever I command you, henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. And there's a difference between a slave and an associate. The slave simply does what he's told. If you don't tell him, he probably doesn't know what to do. He's stuck without direction because you're not told him. Associate is a person who understands the vision and gets behind that. You don't have to tell him what to do because in him is this inner vision of what needs to be done, and even without the master behind him, he knows what to go and do and what the concern is. And that's his idea here. You're not in the dark about what I'm doing. You've caught my vision. It's inside you. I think the nobleman's expectation, Jesus' expectation, is that his servants and know him well enough to aim at the right thing. He can do the direction and he can do the nudging, but we're aiming at the right thing. He left it as a framework. He left it as an example. He left it as teaching, understanding his father. And he said, this is the occupied of our home. And that's his expectation. That we would so love and know him that we would understand his vision and his vision becomes my vision. That's the first thing he is. It's understood in this passage, but it's not spelled out. Did not give a detailed list of how to do it. He says, "Occupy." The second thing I find too is this: the servants are left behind to represent an absent master, not there to, to, to look at. And they were expected to stand for his interests, hold up his reputation, make decisions about his assets, live by his standards. In other words, while he was gone, they were supposed to do well and make him look good. And they were representing him. And it, it just reading this passage, it seems to me they were living among these citizens that hated him. The citizens said, we will not have this man rule over us. They were possibly out doing business with him every day. That's not an easy thing to do. To represent someone that other people hate. Hey, I know who you are. You work for Phyllis, don't you? When's he ever going to come back? Why don't you take that talent of yours and put it in your pocket? We serve in a similar circumstance. But Jesus made a fair deal with his followers. He expects us to represent him here in his absence. And we represent him as he represents us. 
And that's part of his expectation. In Matthew 10, 32, it says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him also will I deny before my Father, which is in heaven. This is part of the expectation here. I will bear your name, he says, into the throne room of heaven without shame, if you will represent me before the men that want nothing to do with me. I will advocate your cause before God if you will advocate my claims before men. That's sort of the, the understanding. I will not be ashamed of you if you don't shame me. But he said, if you're ashamed of me, I will hang my head in God's presence when your name comes up. So we're called to be there here and represent Him, and we do it when we speak of Him. It's okay just a matter of fact when in conversation recognize that uh, this is my church, these are my people, I'm serving the Lord. Just to let people know who you are and who you are. It's okay to surround yourself with reminders of Him. Signs in your living room, signs under your mailbox. It's okay to five cultural friends to do his work. It's okay to sacrifice your esteem and promote his solutions and value his truth. That's what the servant of Christ expects to do in his absence. Live up to his reputation, speak up for his reputation, love him enough to pick his name out of the mud. The third thing is, is understood in this passage is that the king's interests come first. That servants his interests come first. Uh, we talked a little bit about the prodigal visit, and in a way we're all prodigals. We come home after ruining our father's inheritance. And we come back, the second and third, we've made a sons, we come out of that expectation. And Paul said that love and Christ constrains us, and there's a difference between a servant and an employee. Uh, I don't know if you ever thought about this way, when you go to work and work for a, a boss for a week, you put him in debt to you for a week's wages. And if he doesn't pay you, he's in debt to you. But a servant can work and never put his employer in debt to him. And that's the position we're in. We can serve the Lord all our life and never put him in debt to us. But our love for him puts his interest first in our life. The other reason is that we're motivated by love, but we're also eating off his table. Jesus promises that in, in Matthew 6, he said, If God clothes the grass, and he takes care of the flowers, and he feeds the sparrows, how much more will he take care of you, or you little, of little faith? He said, Your Father has need, know, know it, that you have need of all these things, but seek you for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The part of the agreement is this If you put my interest first, I will always back you up. And I will be there when, when you need. Well, I know we live to work. We build and plant and, and commute and farm and sweat to make life happen. But sometimes things don't go right. And in it all, for seeking his kingdom first and his interest first, we can do all these things and even face losses knowing that he has our back. He's promised that much to us. Why would a person live under the protection of a king, eating from the table of a king, and not serve the king? Uh, I don't know what salary employee would call his boss one week and say, hey, it doesn't suit me to work here. I'm just making better money this week working for so-and-so. Uh, it's two-timing. It's double-dipping. It's not acceptable. And so, uh, and so we commit to put his interest first. 
Here's one more reason we do that. In Romans 8, 17, and if children and heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Uh, part of the reason we put His interest first is because we benefit from the advance of His kingdom, don't we? Because we become co-heirs of whatever happens. We are bought in, we are, we're invested, uh, we own some stock in it, He promised to make us co-heirs in His kingdom, and so we work knowing that that his is the benefit, but I'm part of the heir, so I, I go along with that attitude and that, that commitment. Whatever the heirs is king, we share in that, in that inheritance. That's the case expect. Now, the last thing that's required here is simple faithfulness to do what he left me to do. It seems to me that when he went for a kingdom, he didn't need a servant to get it. That was taken care of all by himself. And the talents that these servants spent so long earning for him were actually very little back in his pocket. And so when one came and said, hey, my talent is actually getting ten more, he said, great, thank you. I'm going to put you over ten cities. You gave me a little bit, I'm going to give you a bunch more. And so what they gave back to him was something, but what he gave back to them was much, much more. But what he wanted was faithfulness to prove that his servants were faithful, committed, and vigorous. And uh, that was what was expected there. That was the king's concerns. That was the nobleman's understanding and expectation when he left. The servant had concerns. You can imagine these, because this is our position. If you look at the work of the kingdom, one of these servants and followers of Christ. Imagine a servant looking at the calendar, counting the days, looking at the talent, looking at the investment, the place where it was risky, the place where it was more sure, the, the returns that were coming back, and this constant thought when the, when, the, when the nobleman returns, I want to have something worth giving to him and giving back. The king is coming soon. And so we need these concerns in our life. We need a strong sense of stewardship to take what has been given in our hands and using it for the advance of this interest. And we have a choice. These things that are already disposed are His, and we can either use them up, enjoy them ourselves, or invest them back in, in enlarging and expanding and promoting the kingdom of God. Now, what first comes to mind is this. We can live as simply as possible and dump as much back into the offering as we can. Is that what comes to your mind when you talk about things like this? Uh, it can be the first thing that goes to our mind, but that's not the only thing we're talking about. If you're a family person and you have children in your home, you need to invest in them because they are the kingdom of God. And there's a point where time is more valuable than money. And you might be challenged to think sometime which is more valuable to... Uh, take my wife out on a date or save this money and send it to the hungry people in Africa. Well, if you're a kingdom person and you know the dynamics of the needs of your home, it might be a better investment to spend it on the, the relationship with your wife. That can also be very important. So we're, we're faced with these choices and trying to decide if the, if the responsibilities I have and the opportunities I have with home and church and neighbors and my own personal spiritual Development and stamina, 
where does my investment go? Because all of it's part of the kingdom of God. How can I use my energy and talent to advance this kingdom? That's a daily choice. Every day we face this choice. Whose interest will I bring up today? I have hobbies. I'm Jordan. Two things I do. This, this whole thing of fixing up a house a couple of years ago was a drain on mental energy. I enjoyed it. There's always this niggling question. How much can I invest in this without damaging this? Uh, at what point do I just say it's enough, it's good, we'll stop there and invest more in the things that really matter. It's a constant force we face. We have our list, we have our projects, we have our to-dos, we have our hobbies. But always in this niggling, the phone call I should make, the person I should visit, the needs in, in, across the road in my neighbor's house. And the great debate is there, so we maybe make wise choices in that. And the constant expectation of serving should always hear this in mind, that the king is coming. And when he comes, I will immediately have to give account of what I've done and what I have. And uh, hear his commentary on my choices. In mornings and evenings, in conversation, meditation, with anxious joy, and with with uh, expectation, maybe sober expectation, is thought with me. The king is coming, and I'm giving account. Now, the thoughts of the returning king not only motivated all nine, but missed one. One missed it. And this one was motivated in a different way. And somehow, every morning, this, this lawful servant in this story woke up with a different list of priorities, different values than everybody else. Uh, others were reading investment manuals, and he was digging holes in the backyard. Others were out there seeing what they could do to grow the talent, and he was guarding the hole in the ground. And he wanted to keep it safe and keep it there and, and keep it till the master came home again. Why did he do that? Others took risks. He didn't. I understand this man. And I can say that his temptations and his doubts are often in mind. And as we look at his motives, maybe there's come a mirror in which we can see our own sometimes. We look down on this man, but he's not, he's not far away from any one of us. This man that did not do well. When the master came back, he gave a couple of reasons for his choices. He simply, Matthew says, I knew thee that you were a hard man. Luke says, I feared thee because you were an austere man. You reap where you didn't sow, you gather where you didn't straw, you pick up where you didn't lay down. There's a few things we can gather from that answer. Uh, one thing he that motivated him was almost a fear of the perfection of the, of the king. A fear of his perfection. And we also serve a king with a high standard. We, we can never, I believe, overstate his awesomeness, overexalt his glory. And I've often said, and I still believe it's true, that the higher God is in our mind, and the, the lower we are in his presence, the more close to truth we are. But there's a false offshoot to this idea. And this work thought is, since God is so, and I am so, there's really no thing I can do to add to him or bless him or serve him and do anything right. And even as his servant, all my righteousness must be a filthy rag. There's no good thing I must be able to do. My best effort will be faulty. I can add nothing to his greatness to write and try. 
And some people labor under that false concept. Just don't even try because it's useless anyway. And maybe that was his fear. His fear became so exact and so perfect that he'll probably find fault with everything I do anyway. And my best efforts won't impress him. He's so rich and I'm so poor, I could never add anything to him. He's so able, I'm such a blundering fool, I could probably never do anything right for him. And he stopped. He said, I can't do it. This man preferred not even to try, but to try and fail. We think that sometimes. I'm not persuasive, I can't talk to people. I'm not wise, I've done a bad investment. I mess things up, my dad messed things up, everything I touch fails. I'm not gifted, I'm not talented. Besides, I only got one. Everybody else got two and five, and I just got one. I can't get even one. I had a friend in Guatemala one time told me if he would just be wealthy, if he would have a million dollars, can you imagine all the good things he would do with them? Well, that's what he was doing with the 50 or 100 in his pocket, it wasn't kingdom building necessarily from the ball. He makes choices of the small things you have, and the fruits are built to have more. Some are cautionary to the extreme. A little bit like the way I did in Rook. Uh, I left it impossible to lose them, not getting very high. Some people don't start anything unless it's guaranteed not to fail. They kind of live this in nature, their personality. Some are perfectionists to a fault. I can't guarantee a perfect score, I won't see them start. Now, caution and high stands are good unless they keep you rooted to the spot and don't let you step out and serve in your way. So let it be that to me. That was his, his problem. He said, I don't know where to invest. We talked a little bit about indecision yesterday. Indecision can be a great paralyzer of the best intention. And I guess his servant with his one talent man was a little bit like me and the toothbrush child. All these options, so he'd stand here and wait for a while and see if lightning strikes. Um, a little bit the way he felt about his options. Spiritual indecision is never forward progress. It holds back the king's business. It's easy to compare what we think about ourselves and what we see in other people. Look what they're doing. Look what they've got going. There's no way I can do that. So why even try? I have no idea. No, no, no ability. And above all, he lacked any motivation to go out and do something. Uh, unless the king's vision is internalized, we will never build with it. We'll never build with it. And probably all these things drove him to make a safer choice. A safer choice that was impossible to fail, impossible to lose, lose the capital at least. He had a low goal, simply to get back to the king with the king to do to him. Let's just bury it, we'll dig it back up in time and hand it over, and that would be enough. So he just did it. He, he buried it in the ground and uh, sat there and waited for the king to come home. Can you imagine the spare time that man had for hobbies? Can you imagine the uh, lack of responsibility, the freedom to just enjoy life? And he probably scuffled with all his rushing around trying to uh, work so hard for But all the while, the king was coming. The king was coming. And the king came. And he said, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to his work for me. And the day came when the nobleman came back and his reward was with him, and he called the faithful in first. And he gave according to their work. 
He gave according to their faithfulness and according to their diligence. The one that made ten, he said, ten cities. The one that gave five, five cities. And God does not simply reward based on the fact that we have accepted Him. I believe with all my heart there is reward for those that pour their best into His kingdom and do it well. He called him the slothful. He dealt very harshly with him. He said, you wicked men, you didn't even try. He gave his excuses. And he said, out of your own mouth I'll judge you knew me. He said you knew who I was, but you made no attempt to prepare yourself for what I was. He didn't lift a finger. His position as a servant didn't save him. His argument of, you're so perfect and I'm so, so undone didn't save him. In Matthew, it says he was cast into outer darkness. In Luke, it simply says the talent was taken from him and given to somebody else. I guess you can uh, understand that if you, if you do. But he called the animals. And so he played these men and said they didn't want me to reign over them. So when the kingdom comes back for us, it's going to be an individual reckoning. Uh, he called all his servants and gave them his stuff together. And when he comes back, he calls them in one by one and said, What about your talent? What about your talent? What about yours? And they all gave account individually. And the, the main question was not simply, Were you my servant? The question was, What did you do with what I gave you? That's the determining factor in this passage. I believe the scripture points out a few things you need to be concerned about when he is coming and as we expect his return. And I want to mention at least two of them here before we close. The first concern we find in 1 Corinthians 3 11. Uh, I'm not here to explain this whole thing, but it's an important factor to think about. It says, For what other foundation, for other foundation can no man lay than that he's laid, which is Jesus Christ? Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall show every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. And in my understanding, there is only one foundation, Jesus Christ. And as we are part of His church, we are on that foundation. And as a believer, that's where you are. There's one building on that foundation. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's this building of living stones. And somehow, in our participation as a member in it, we're also called to help build it. And that's where these verses come in. We can contribute to the growth and the building of this this building, and we add something to it by our life, by our attitude, by our contribution, and it has either greater or lesser value depending on the value of what I'm contributing to it. And in broad strokes, I would simply say this, the more I delight and work with the resources of eternal value, the more gold and silver and precious stones get added to this building. And the more I delight and pursue and take interest and, and covet and run after things of, of temporal work, the less value I add to the kingdom of God. 
There's directly interest, there's shallow banter, there's material pursuit. And I don't understand all this. How a person can contribute basically nothing and still be on the foundation at all. But I can't contradict what he says here. The nearer I am in my working to the scriptural model of outreach, of family life, of church life, of personal life, the closer I am to depending on the, the grace in my life to do things and, and the spiritual resource the office, the more I can contribute to building the body of Christ. The more I stray into human wisdom and earthly things and, and other approaches to the way things have to be, the less value I can add to this kingdom. So that's one thing that he's going to be looking for when he comes back. What have I added? And the second thing is this, in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and this is also in the context of offerings, but this I say, he would sow it sparingly, shall reap also sparingly, and he would sow it bountifully, shall reap also bountifully. See, the law of sowing and reaping covers a couple of areas. First of all, it covers the nature of what we're sowing. God is not mocked. We sow the flesh, we'll reap destruction. We sow the sow the spirit, we'll reap eternal life. But here it goes a step further. It's not only the quality of what we sow, it's the amount of what we sow that matters. It's good if you plant a row of sweet corn. It's better if you plant a garden full of sweet corn. Why don't you plant a whole field of it? Maybe you can't use all that wouldn't be a good thing. But according to the abundance of my sowing, I reap. See, God is not limited in the return to what we sow. Somebody put it this way, there's enough energy in the sun to to raise a whole continent full of corn if we consider the whole thing in corn. God is not limited. The limiting factor is the part that we contribute. He can empower that. So the king came and we certainly rewarded his servants based on his diligence. And then one more. Jesus told his father at one point in Luke 12, if a good man of the house had known at what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not suffered his house to be broken up. Then he said, be ready also for the coming man comes at an hour you know not of. You think not. Then Peter asked the question, Jesus, who are you talking to? Are you talking to everybody or just us? Are you talking to everyone else or including us in this thing? He gave a parable to help us understand that the coming of Christ is unexpected for everyone and that it should concern the servants as much as anyone else. And Luke 12, we'll read a little bit there in verses 42 to 46. Luke 12 verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is this? The answer to Peter's question. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler of his household? to give them their fortune and meet in this season. Blessed is that servant whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. For the truth I say unto you, that he will make him a ruler over all that he has. But if that servant say in his heart, My Lord, he let his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and eat and drink and be drunken. The Lord of that servant will come in the day where he looketh not for him, and at the hour where he is not aware, will cut him in thunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. We could sum it all up very quickly. 
Jesus said, Blessed is the servant, and when the Lord comes, he still finds him at his post, doing what he is called to do, feeding the household that he is called to feed. And it's sad when one forgets it and begins to be harsh instead of caring and begins to seek instead of feed, that's what it says here, the household he's working with, begins to live for the flesh and not for the spirit. And the consequence is this. This man will no longer be counted as one of my servants, but he will be appointed a place with those who said, I will not that this man rule over us. He got there with him. And the king is coming. And much of Christian focus today is salvation. Let's get on the foundation. Let's make sure we know Christ. We have that assurance. That's not the only decision you're going to make this week. You're going to make many more decisions the rest of our life. How will I take the challenge given the use of the opportunities and the investment? How will I do it? And will I do it at all? I heard a story a long time ago, and I'll close with this, of a builder who was near retirement, and he had built many houses like other people. And he approached his boss about retirement. And the owner of the company he's working for said, I'd, I'd like you to build one more house. It's in a pretty prominent place in town. You're the best builder I have. I'd like you to do this. It's going to be a nice house. It's going to be a good house. And I want you to do your best on it. And I'll provide the funds and we do it. Here's the plan to do it. So this, this builder began to think, I've not saved a lot for retirement. You're in the last job. Would it be okay if I'd substitute a few lesser things and just set aside some of what would have gone this house for my own retirement. Would that be okay? And so he started substituting. Maybe he substituted 2x10 for 2x12. Maybe he substituted maple for cedar. Maybe he substituted cheaper flooring for special flooring. And it didn't look much different, but underneath, just not quite the same as, as he was asked to build it. Last house. And the day it was finished, he reported his boss was done. And brought all the employees together, employees together, and said, uh, here's this employee just on his last house, and we just want to wish him a good farewell. And he handed him a key and said, the house that you just built, I planned it to be for you. So here's the key, enjoy it, it's your retirement present, um, happy retirement. Maybe this man just sort of sank inside, wilted inside, because of what he knew was not done well. I think only eternity will reveal the lines that are drawn between what we choose now and what, what comes out there. There's many things that get brief glimpses of. There's lines drawn from here to there that are direct results of what we choose here. Hindsight will probably reveal them perfectly. But may God bless us today with the insight to see some of it enough to motivate us to choices that glorify God. The king is coming, and his reward is with him. To give every man according to his work shall be. So God bless you as you serve and wait and, and prepare for that coming king, and to go back home and invest your talent in the Father's business. Let's bow his prayer. Lord, this morning we just want to wish your blessing on these young people here and as they make choices in life about how to do things and where to invest their time and talent and energy and, and 
and keep there. We forgive them and place in your kingdom and make them fruitful for your work and make them fulfill in what you do. And God is all, Lord. We're all in this together and we're all in this place to make. Bless this gathering and this church. We're going to do